Father, thank you for who you are. I just thank you for bringing these people around us this morning so we can study your word. And we just ask that um, what you'd have for us over the next coming weeks through Ephesians 2 will speak to all of us, that there will be great theological lessons and great practical lessons that we can take with us out into the world so that we can bring the good news of your son Jesus out to everyone. And we thank you for our provision that we do not deserve, this beautiful community, this amazing weather. We thank you for these amazing kids who are around us, who brighten our day. And we thank you for uh, just this group of families that meets together. And we just keep in mind those that aren't feeling well this week, that you ask that you heal them quickly and bring them back to us. And we just thank you for your son, Jesus, who paid the ultimate price on the cross for our sin. We ask for all of our blessings in his holy name. Amen. Uh, this is pretty cool. Ephesians 2 is, is like theologically one of the richest like most intense books. It is really pretty awesome. And there's a lot of stuff in here, if you've ever looked through Ephesians, where Ephesians 2 gets into some pretty deep stuff, like where Calvinism and Arminianism split, like being predestined. It's theolo- It's the a lot of what we call soteriology, or the study of grace, like how are we saved, the study of salvation, it's, it's a pretty deep book. <clears throat> We're not going to get into all that stuff this week. I just wanted to do the first two verses because it really does set the stage for some stuff. And it's kind of, it's interesting how Paul does this. Of course, Paul doesn't write this in chapters, right? So this is a big run-on sentence in Greek and no punctuation. He starts at the beginning of the letter and writes it all the way through. But we, what we come out of is all the good stuff that Paul gives us. And then he goes into like all the power stuff that we talked about uh, last week where Paul is talking about why God is as powerful as he is. Like, what does he have the power to do? Like, the world's going to be his footstool. Uh, we don't have to worry about our enemies, you know, and we talked about all that stuff. He's going to get into kind of the stuff nobody likes to talk about in the contemporary church, like the stuff that's hard to hear. Like, what about the people who don't believe? And that's a tough one to hear, right? Because nobody likes to go sit in a church or talk to their pastor, preacher, teacher, sit in a Bible study group, and like here, people are going to go to hell. It's a tough thing to talk about. And it's tough for a lot of reasons, and it's understandable, right? Like you don't want to, like if you have people in your circle who are not believers, it's weird to be like, hmm, man, they don't get what we get. I mean, it's a tough thing to consider, but it's the truth. And we know it's the truth because the Bible says it repeatedly. And this is one of those places and um, like if I were to title this kind of couple of verses, I would just title it dead. What does it mean to be dead? What does Paul mean to say when we're dead? So let's look at Ephesians 2. We're going to actually do three verses. <coughs> Excuse me. We're going to do Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. I'm reading out of the ESV. And it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Wow, pretty deep. Paul is saying this is who you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the power of the prince of the air, following the rest of mankind. The rest of mankind is dead. That's like a tough one to drink in, right? 
So I think it lends us to question like, what are we saved from? What does it mean to be redeemed? What does, it, what does that look like? What are we redeemed out of? Is it just a state of mind that we're redeemed out of? Or is it just that we live in a better place? Like because we go to church, because we say we believe, like life's better, we just have hope. You know, we could raise our hands and sing songs and have the rock show in church and all that kind of stuff. Like, is that what makes it better? Does it make it, make it better because we have good friends around us? But what does it really say about everyone else who doesn't believe? And that's the question that I ask. So, like I said, Paul just got, talent, got done telling everybody about the, the Paul, God's great power to save. And if you remember the end of that chapter, we finished learning about his power over all creation and the heavenly realms, right? And he has the power to save us and make us the body of Christ. The fullness of him is what it went over in the last part of the chapter. And this is great news about us being his inheritance and him being our inheritance. This is really important. But why? Why do we want to be inherited? What are we inherited? We know what we're inherited into because he went over that. What are we inherited out of? And that's what Paul's talking about here. But if you're like me at all, if you ever kind of walked on the other side, because I was not saved out of, like, I was going to church and things were pretty good. And then one day I was like, oh, I want to make a decision for Christ. Like, that was not it. Like, I... I'm about the most horrible human being. And now the stuff remains. I carry that man around with me. Horrible as the day is long. And I am not one to like stand in front of my friends and tell you life gets better just because Christ saved me. I went through some pretty, pretty dark times, especially Carol and I, even after we were saved, where we didn't know if our marriage was going to last. Dealt with drugs and alcohol repeatedly in my life over and over. I'm an addict. I, it's hard to kick. It's hard to deal with. It's very tough for me. The things I did as a young man from the time I was probably 13 or 14 all the way up through when I was saved were, from a human perspective, unforgivable. It surprises me that God would forgive me of a lot of the things that I've done. The people that I've slighted is not a good person at all. I'm not proud of any of it. It's tough being a dad and looking at your kids and having expectations for them when you know where you've been, right? And I can't help but wonder if you've kind of seen that dark side and then you're saved by Jesus Christ, you kind of have the opportunity to see that other side. You have the opportunity to see that hope, especially the more you read, the more you study, the more you spend time with the body of Christ. You learn about that truth and the hope that comes only through Jesus, right? But this is the thing. Some people are just happy living in the dark. Like, they're cool with it. They're all right. You know, we're around people during the day who are like, it's okay. Some people feel some sort of spiritual healing through some other means because they don't know the truth and it brings them joy. I don't think it brings them true hope because there's only one hope. But what happens to them? What happens to the people that this doesn't happen to? And Paul is really clear here about the state of being, about those who are not in Christ. And this is what he says. They're dead. That's pretty tough. I mean, he doesn't mince words here. He says they're dead. So it's a highly debated word here, right? A Calvinist would tell you that when they're dead, that they're dead. Like the word dead. That they can't even make a decision for Christ. Like the, the thought of free will isn't there. That's what the Calvinist would say. Totally depraved is what they would call it. And he, Paul talks about this in Romans as well. But 
This idea is Christ actually needs to come in and touch you. Preeminence, he needs to touch you in order for you to realize that you're dead in your sin and then be saved. I'm not sure I fall on that side. I, I don't think what Paul here means is that you're so dead that you can't recognize that you're dead in your sin, that your eyes don't have scales on them totally. Um, but I would say Paul uses it in a number of other terms really to point out your state of separation from God. I want to give you some of those. Enduring Word, which is a resource I use quite a bit, it's pretty neat, um, online has got this, these great kind of Bible studies if you want to look at verses at a time. But in this one, when you look at what um, Paul means by dead, there's some other examples in the New Testament of what God calls somebody who isn't in Jesus Christ. Not just dead, also blind. means they're blind. 2 Corinthians 4. A slave to sin, Romans 6. A lover of darkness, John 3. Sick, Mark 2. Lost, Luke 15. An alien, a stranger, and a foreigner, Ephesians 2. A child of wrath, Ephesians 2. This one's difficult. What does it mean to be a child of wrath? It's God's wrath that is poured out on Christ on the cross. What does wrath mean? It means hate. It means God poured out his hatred towards sin on the cross. This is a difficult one for people to really grasp. God, if you've ever heard in the contemporary church, love the sinner, hate the sin, that is theologically a very messy thing to say. We don't love sinners and hate sin. We hate sin and we tell sinners about their depraved state so that they can be right with Jesus Christ. You, you don't just be like, hey, I love you just where you are. It's a, no, no, you're going to hell. I want you to be saved. Where you're going is bad. You're dead. I want to help you. It's actually not that it's opposite of the way people say it. It's just wrong. It's theologically incorrect. What does it mean to be a child of wrath? A child of God's hate? If you end up on the wrong side of this at the end, it's not going to be good. Like there's only one way to the Father. Christ says it's through him, right? Paul in Colossians says that they're under the power of darkness. So that word dead, it comes to the Greek word necros, right? Like necropsy, to be dead. So necros. And it should lead us to believe that there's real death. It's the only outcome for those who are not in Christ. So I think what it should lead us to do as Christians is, it, it's like, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to knowing that the people who are not saved are actually dead? To our friends, to our family, to the people in our circle, to the people that we work with, to the people we interact with on a daily basis, just looking at them and knowing you're dead in your sin, how should I respond? When we talk to people about politics, when we talk to people about work, what are our you know, what is our response to people? Are we bringing Christ to them regularly? For those of us, like people in this room that have a family, without any, you know, hesitation, the first thing we do is bring our kids up in God. That's like understanding that we're limited in our external circle when we have little kids running around the house and like all of your time seems to be spent like right there. That is your first ministry, bringing them up in Jesus Christ because the world is not doing this. People are bringing their kids to church and dumping them off at youth group who is playing games with your kids and not teaching them about Jesus. 
It's like, oh, it's fun time. Let's play with balls and get balls around and sing funny songs and hold our hands up in the air. No, it's about Jesus because I don't want you to be dead at the end of the game. So first it's our kids and then it's our family around us. We need to be willing to share and we need to be willing to realize that the difference between our hope, which we are happy with and we are joyful with and we rejoice in, is death. Also, what are our expectations uh, of the world? And I, this one's kind of important. So when you're dead, you have no value of life, right? Why should the dead value life? And this is something that took me a while to really kind of get my head around, and it makes me have pretty low expectations of the world. I'll give you an example. Over the past week, Texas passed some legislation about abortions, right? So up until how many weeks now before you can have an abortion? 15 weeks or something like that? I can't remember. It matters not for this argument. There are a lot of people who are pushing back on that because of the right to choose and women's rights and a lot of things. The debate is not about abortion for believers. The debate is about why do those people not value life? I don't expect them to value life. I'm not going to stand on a street corner with a sign saying abortion is murder and expect somebody on the other side of the street who is not a believer to actually care about life because they don't. Look at the world that we live in. You know how many people are human trafficked in America today? Millions of kids are human trafficked in America. If you got time, go to Vets for Child Rescue on the internet and, and look that site up. He's a former SEAL Team 6 member. And look at some of the stats that that guy brings up. He's actually got a little movie on his site. People generally don't care about humans. They're willing to rape, beat, murder, dismember. They, they, people don't care. And Christian church, on the whole, the contemporary Christian church wants to stand up like they are righteous and tell people, you're wrong for doing this. Instead of being like, you need Jesus. Because you can't expect somebody who does not know God, does not know Christ, to have some sort of moral high ground. They don't. They don't care about life. They don't care about cheating on their spouses. They don't care about raising their kids properly. They don't care if their kids grow up to be a bunch of transgender, Marxist, human trafficking, abortion-having turds. They don't care. And that's the point, is our expectation shouldn't be, I want you to do righteous things from the perspective that you're in. We do righteous things as our response to our salvation. Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and we crave, we desire to do right things. We cannot expect the world, we cannot expect our government to make decisions that are in line with our faith when the government is not a theocracy. The government's a bunch of lying, cheating, stealing, right? Do I need to even go down that road? Do we need to make names? You know what I mean? Like, we can't have these expectations. We know that they're bad. Instead, what do we do? We preach the gospel to them. That's what we do. And then the hope is that the Holy Spirit touches their heart, that they're saved. And when they're saved, they make decisions that are in line with what Christ would do. What we do know on the abortion issue is God knitted those kids together in the womb. And where do they go? To glory. And we know that. They are happier for it. So even though their parents might be living in sin, 
those kids get to live in glory with Jesus forever. So Paul also says in this thing that people are dead in their trespasses. So what are trespasses? So there's a difference between sins and trespasses. So sin really is a state of being, right? If you were to go back to Genesis 3, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but you're dead in your trespasses. Trespasses are the things that you do that are sinful. And then sin, hamartia, where we get the word hamartiology, the study of sin, um, that's your state of sinfulness. So our proclivity towards self-exaltation and the lack of need for God. So that's really what the sinful state is. If you go to Genesis 3, that's where Adam and Eve eat of the tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. And that is where, remember, when Satan talks to them, he's like, are you sure God said? He gets them to question God. And when they question God, they eat of it. So what does it really mean? So if you do like a really in-depth study on this, what you find out is that eating fruit is not necessarily a bad thing. That is a trespass, right? So I'll give you an example. You're all believers in the room. You two go home in your loving marriage and he speaks to you poorly, disrespectfully, right? You give him one upside the head. So now you both have transgressed, right? (laughs) Him against you and then... You against him. That's a transgression. It's a result of your sinful state. It's a result of that old man living with you that you can't, or old woman living with you that you can't get rid of. So eating of the fruit was a transgression. But what led to it? It was the questioning of whether or not I could have the knowledge that God had. It's really doing it on your own. It's this thinking that I can do things on my own. I can have the knowledge that God has. I don't need God. I can just do it my way. And that's what they did. As you read on and you go into Genesis 4, what you find out is God's going to give them a little idea how bad this sinful state really is. It like crouches at the door like a lion ready to pounce you all the time. And it's always there. It's this state of being that you live in that you just can't get rid of it. You need to be watchful of it because it is prowling. At every turn, your sinful nature just wants you to do something bad. I know this because he jumps on me and beats me regularly and I do horrible things, right? Before we were saved, we walked according to the course of the world is what Paul says. And the prince of the world is Satan. We formally walked. That's what he said, past tense. We formally walked. That means we no longer walk that way. We need to walk in righteousness. He's the prince of the power of the air, the spirit working in the sons of disobedience. Remember, we talked about God being over the heavenly realms last week. And then what we see is that Satan is at work in the world to lead people away from God. So you talk to people about Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't work in their life. Satan is prowling around trying to lead them away from God all the time. Satan is the one who whispers to the kids in high school when they're young believers, and they go, do you really know anything about your faith? Really? Were Adam and Eve really true? Do you really think there was a global flood? Do you really think Noah was in the belly of a fish for three days? Do you really think a guy could raise himself from the dead? Yeah, but that book is translated over and over and over and over and over and over. Does it really mean what it says it means? Yeah, but you don't have an original copy of that book. Satan is the one who puts all those whispers in all those kids, and by the time they come out of college, they just don't believe. That's Satan at work in the world all the time. And that's why we're here, because we study and we learn, we worship and we pray together and we strengthen our kids so that when they go out into the world and they see sinful people around them, they say, hey man, I've got some hope living inside of me that you need. 
and they preach Jesus Christ to them. So it's not a figure of speech that he's trying to lead people away. Paul is clear that Satan is working. He's working hard to lead people away. And this goes right back to the garden. What did he do with Adam and Eve? He didn't just sit back and watch them sin. He dug right in there and was like, hey, is God really going to do anything bad? Really? He gets them to question their faith. So we're going to learn, we, through this we learn a lot about that harmardiology, that study of sin, right? Lusts of the flesh, Paul talks about here. Indulging in the desires of our flesh and the mind and by nature we're children of wrath, or we were. Even at rest, he says. That means even when we're just chilling. We don't even have to be active sinners. We just have sinful mind, sinful thought, proclivity towards sinfulness. Um, we talked about Genesis 3. So, these are tough words by Paul, but I want to go into this a little bit because there's a little bit more about this sinful nature that we need to understand. People are dead. We were once dead. I want to talk to you about a couple other verses because people will sometimes question and say, well, in that one spot, you know, it might say they're dead, but what about all the good stuff Jesus says? Okay, that good stuff is because we're brought out of some bad stuff. What does some of that bad stuff look like that we need to like, we need to be clear. Right? We need to be clear that we're saved from something. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, Do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Not everybody gets into heaven. I'm not, tell you, I'm not saying it. The Bible says it. I, like, don't hold my word for it. Look it up yourself. Unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is a pretty extensive list. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Galatians 5, also Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Because we just talked about the flesh here. We lived according to the passions of the flesh, Paul says in Ephesians 2. In Galatians here, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, which is hate, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, <laughs> envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is, this is tough stuff to hear. There are people not going where you and I are going. It says in Revelation 21, John writes this, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So that word sorcerers, by the way, is the word pharmakia, which we get pharmacology from, which goes for a couple things. That word pharmakia means not only people who take substances to try to get something else, but it's like that spirituality stuff, like using seeing stones and kind of you know, witchcraft and stuff like that. Of course, a lot of the modern witchcraft comes out of people making potions and taking drinks. If you look into old Celtic stuff, the Gauls, we talked about the Gauls and how they were all remnants of the Celts and how they were into taking a bunch of hallucinogenics and doing all this stuff and you, know, you get the evil eye and so all this kind of 
crazy stuff. But this is what I think. I think we have a really low view of God's wrath. Like we forget sometimes that God is coming to smite his enemies. He's coming to smash them down. We have a low view of what it is to be a slave to sin. To be walking according to this world means that we are not included in God's inheritance. The lake of fire is hell. Is what the outcome is for those who don't walk with God. But it's not preached in churches anymore. And this is the problem. You go into all these churches and they're going to tell you, man, everything's great. Can't you feel God's presence? Can't you feel the Holy Spirit working among you? And all that stuff is trash. You sit in a church and they're dropping angel feathers from the rafters somewhere and people feel like they're having this heavenly experience. And at no point in time does somebody look at the people and go, have you told your neighbor about Jesus yet? Because that's really important because they're headed to hell and they need him. And instead it's like, how can I feel when I leave church? Do I feel like I'm having a spiritual experience and does it make me feel like I should drop more money in the pot at the end? And that is absolutely not what gets you to heaven. It's only Jesus that gets you into heaven. But it is a good way to get people to come listen to you speak, right? It's a good way to get donations in the basket. They don't want to hear what the consequences are of their sinfulness because they want to have a spiritual experience on Sunday and be able to live however they want the rest of the week. Conversely, the universal nature of the modern church completely whitewashes away sinfulness, totally. I mean, it just gets washed over, and it tells people they can live however they want, believe whatever they want, and still get into heaven. It's just not true. We've, We've made it clear through these verses. This is another thing. This is a giant pet peeve of mine because I guess I hear it from where I came out of, but it's important to hear. Things that bother me that people say that I want to address firmly sometimes are things like this. When a dead family member passes, but they're in a better place. You've heard that? It's like, you don't know what to say to somebody when their family members are like, well, at least they're in a better place. Especially if they were sick or hurting or whatever that might be, they're in a better place. Are they looking down on you? You know, grandpa's looking down on you, making sure you're okay. Um, or if a couple died, you know, or if it's like people from families that are, well, at least they're together again. You know, grandma and grandpa are together in heaven. Well, there's no marriage in heaven. Jesus is clear about it. So guess what? They're not together in heaven. Not in that way. Um, they're not partying, especially if they weren't believers. Even better is the idea that if you go to hell, that there's going to be a party. Oh, you might be up there sitting on cloud nine, but I'm going to be down there like rocking out ACDC, you know, drinking whiskey. There's going to be, you know, dance clubs and parties. No, hell is a place that God built to punish angels who are way more powerful than we are. And we get to be sent there if we're away from Jesus. That's bad. That's bad news. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Heaven is paradise. Heaven is creative paradise. God built it for us. In a new heaven and a new earth so that we get to go to an amazing place. If you died in your sin, you don't go to heaven and look down on people with some sort of protective nature. This is not consistent with the word of God. But here's what I think God built into people that makes them say things like that. It's because we're built imago Dei, in the image of God. He built it in us to know that heaven is there. And people want to know about it. And we need to let them know about it. When they say, hey, you know, grandpa's at least looking down on us now. And you look at them and go, how do you know that? And then just let them say their answer and be like, you know, I, 
Grandpa was a believer. He's in heaven right now, but he's not looking down on us because there's no more sadness. He's in a great place. He doesn't need to look down on us. We don't need his help. I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me. I don't need my grandpa's help. Conversely, if they were not a believer, we need to have that conversation too. Maybe grandpa's not looking down on us. Maybe grandpa's not living in paradise. You know, grandpa wasn't a believer. You know, we can do better. We have Christ. We need that in our lives. So there are lies. People around us, friends, families, co-workers, they're dead in their sin. We talked about this. And the only escape from that is Jesus Christ. Even better, uh, anyway, when as believers, we're gonna, when are we going to start actually believing what Jesus has to say about the word of God? When are we going to take it seriously? So we say we believe it. It's like, do we take it seriously when we leave this group or if you leave church? When will we take it serious enough to share the good news about Jesus with people? Do you really care about the state of being your friends? There's plenty of guys that I work with. Like, I've never loved people deeper than the men that I worked with. You guys know this. Like, there are guys. We are talking about showing emotions last night from something totally unrelated. I've probably been more emotional around some of the men that I've worked with than probably I've been around my wife and my kids. Because things happened, especially over the last 20 years, that were pretty emotional. I've lost dear friends. You know, I've had friends go through horrific, just tragic lives because of stuff. Loss, death, maimed, sinfulness. And, and sometimes it's very, especially if they're close to you, it's just, it's emotional. Do you care enough about the people that are around you that you're like, bro, I know how to give you this hope. You're just holding it close, holding your cards close. It's not yours to hold, by the way. You need to share it with people. Knowing about all this bad stuff is good news for two reasons. This is going to be how we sum this up today. Knowing about all this bad stuff is good news for two very specific reasons. There's probably a hundred reasons, but these two reasons are good enough to leave us with when we part ways. All of this bad news, we know this out of all of it. We're saved. We are saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, and it's a gift from God. Right? Out of that, we get the five solas, right? We're going to talk about that when we get down to verse 8 and verse 9. In Ephesians, we're going to dig into those hard because this is really, this is like the basis of our theology. It's really good, rich, theological, no bad news, all great news. It's going to be super fun. We can all smile on that one. We won't talk about anybody dying and going to hell. But in this one, when we talk about that the world is literally going to hell in a handbasket, what we as believers know, we're saved from that. We don't have to worry about that. We've got hope in him. He has saved us. He came into my life. He saved me. I didn't have to do anything for it. I didn't deserve it. I was a horrible person. He did it for me. I didn't have to do anything for him. All I had to do is live here in my sinful state and God go, I want you. And I went, yes, yes, I want you too. That's awesome. And I want my kids to have you and my grandkids to have you. And I want to leave a legacy and I want to tell all my friends. So that's The first point of good news. Here's the second point. We, us sitting in this room, and our kids, you, we, through God's divine plan, we get to play a part in that. We get to play a part in his merciful plan for redemption by sharing the good news with others. This should bring us joy. Why should it bring us joy? I want to use my kids for an example. You guys all have kids. Do we not want the best for our kids? 
right? You want them to have like the nicest shoes, the nicest clothes, the best video game. You want them to have whatever it is. You just want the best stuff for your kids. Does it not bring us joy to, sh joy to share the best things with them? Christmas comes, best toys. Birthday comes, best toys. Friday comes, best steak dinner. Whatever it is, like we want the best for our kids. It's like built in us that we want the best for our kids. That's how God, again, this is the Imago Dei. This is God wants the best for us. He put in us, I want the best for your kids. Does it not bring us joy to share the truth and know that our kids are not the sons and daughters of wrath? How huh, buddy? But instead adopted into the loving kindness, hope, and eternal salvation of our graceful, loving, merciful God who is willing to sacrifice even his own son that our sons and daughters get to be with him. We get to play a part in this. So two things. One, we're saved from it. Two, we get to be a part of it. God's divine plan for the world, he said, you get to go be a part of my plan. The most amazing plan set before the pillars of the earth that he gave to us to give his son to the world. And he's like, I'm going to give you the opportunity to be a part of that. That's amazing news. That is pretty cool that I get to be a part of what the creator built. And this is what we know. We need Jesus. And it's a strong reminder to us of where we once were before we were saved in a bold declaration of where we are now in him. And it should give us motivation to reach the lost. So pray with me. Um, I think this is a, it's a strong message to understand where we came out of and to know where we're going and to know of those two points that we're saved and we get to be a part of God's plan. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We just help, hope, Lord, that you would help us to recognize where we are saved out of our sinfulness. It would help us to, to have good perspective of response to the people living in the world around us, our friends, our family, politicians, church leader, whoever it is, anybody in our family, that we would be bold in declaring your name, Lord, towards anybody who does not know you. That the only way to have hope, the only way to have eternal life with you, Lord, is through your son, Jesus. That we would be willing to share it with anyone and everyone. That it would bring you joy, that it would bring you glory, Lord. We thank you for making us a part of your divine plan. We don't get to just enjoy your inheritance. We get to be a part of reaching people for your son, Lord. Because you've given it to us to be motivated to tell people about how amazing you are. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who gave us life on the cross so that we may have life eternally with you, Lord. We thank you for who you are. We ask that you send these families away happy, healthy, joyful, and bold for you. We ask for all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.